Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning, David Gura with Tom Keen on Bloomberg Surveillance. Wednesday, November the 9th, the day after Election Day 2016. Since the polls closed yesterday, we've kept one eye on the popular vote in the Electoral College, the other eye on the markets. Analysts said Donald Trump's path to the White House would be narrow when it looked like he was indeed on that path, winning Florida, giving Hillary Clinton a run for her money in Virginia. The sell-off began in earnest, the Mexican peso touching record lows. Overnight, Dow futures down more than 700 points from time to time. Around 2 a.m. Wall Street time, the announcement came from John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, telling her stunned supporters at the Javits Center they would not hear from the Democratic candidate, not until every vote is counted. Donald Trump, for his part, did not wait. He spoke at his election night headquarters about an hour later, thanked those supporters and made a conciliatory gesture or two to his opponent and her supporters. President-elect Donald Trump standing next to Vice President-elect Mike Pence. And now, four hours later, we're seeing futures down less dramatically uh, than they were last night. S&P futures down 45 points. Dollar peso at 1989.12 and gold which we're keeping an eye on uh, all last night at 13.03.15. Joining us now in studio is Bob Hormatz, Vice Chairman of Kissinger uh, and Associates. Bob, great to have you here. Great to be here. Morning. Thanks. This played out just as you expected, I imagine. This is a big surprise to me, a big shock. But uh, now we have a new president-elect, and we have to figure out a way of making sure that he succeeds in dealing with the problems that the country faces and pulling the country back together. This country... It's not just divided, it's fractured. And uh, healing this fracture is going to take a lot of work uh, across party lines and within parties because they're very, very uh, strongly held views on, in both parties that ultimately, if you're going to get any progress at all, you have to compromise on some things. I think there can be a deal on infrastructure. And, and I think both uh, Clinton and Trump focused a lot on small business. And there are plans in the House Republican bill for lowering taxes on small businesses uh, that could be very helpful to individual proprietorships or uh, LLCs or individual companies, small businesses that now pay the individual income tax. If you lower taxes on small business, that can be very helpful. And I think there could be a consensus uh, developed on that, for instance. Among the things that we didn't talk about in much detail before last night uh, was how Donald Trump would govern with a Republican Congress, Republican House, and Republican Senate. It does make things easier here, having Republican control of both those houses. Yes, it does. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the rule in the Senate is you have to get 60 votes to get legislation through, and therefore having a slight majority in the Senate doesn't guarantee you're going to get what you want. In addition, there are divisions between Ryan and the president-elect Trump on a certain issues. So he's got to work out arrangements with, with Ryan and with others in the House to get the kind of things he wants. So he's going to, even though they're all Republicans, he still has to make deals with the House because they don't see things eye to eye with him. And on trade, he has a lot of authority. He's been delegated over decades, a huge amount of authority, and he can take action on trade without having to uh, discuss it with the House. He may find it prudent to do so, but he, can, he has a lot of authority. And if he abuses that authority, if he does the kind of things he says he's going to do, as said he's going to do in the campaign, uh, you could have a great many problems. Even if fiscal policy is sound, you could have a trade war if he decides to go after China, impose unilaterally a 45% tariff or do the kind of things to abolish NAFTA. And I think what the market's more worried about is not so much his fiscal policy, because there are checks and balances, and there are a number of people he has to work with to get fiscal policy through. He has almost unlimited, for the moment, powers on trade uh, to take tough action. And 
And that could cause huge problems in the market if he pursues the policies he said. He could moderate them, and I think there would be people who would argue that they should be moderated, tougher lines, but not these kind of policies that would cause a trade war. David Gura, for me, it was a telltale moment. Two things happened. Chris Matthews killed it on MSNBC with an analysis of the Philadelphia suburbs, and particularly Bucks County. And the other was the loss of your North Carolina. Mm. What, when for you, in the heat of the coverage last night, was the shift made? It felt like for hours we were watching Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and I was sitting next to Megan Murphy, as you mentioned, and she also was looking at Pennsylvania very closely. And the story through the night, when we were looking at Virginia as well, was about these suburbs, about these exurbs uh, in Virginia. The story was similar uh, in Pennsylvania as well. We talked about yeah. the dichotomy there, the two Pennsylvanias. Barack Obama had a lot of success bringing in massive votes uh, in and around Philadelphia. It appears Hillary Clinton did not have the same success. I, I, I agree, and it's so much a type two, not so much what Mr. Trump did, but the analysis, the postmortem of how Secretary Clinton performed. Robert Hormetz, you worked within the Obama administration and most directly with Secretary Clinton. How would you suggest she will move on after this stunning defeat? Well, it's going to be tough. She is a tough person, though, and she's, I think, able to deal with difficult circumstances. But this one, I think she felt very good about running, and I think she felt that she had a very good chance of, of winning. But she also uh, is not going to back off from playing a role in American politics, even if it's not as president. She has a number of strong views about issues, and I think she will weigh in. And I think if the president's wise, President-elect uh, Trump is wise, he will sit down and, and, and talk to her and at least get some sense on some of the issues perhaps issues on which they agree or could agree. We have to pull the country together. The fractured country, if it continues to be fractured from a political and a social point of view, we're not going to get very much done. One way he could do it is to reach out and uh, talk to her and others in the Democratic Party. One of the things that was very interesting, when Eisenhower won a very controversial nomination uh, in 1952, he ran against Taft. Taft was the one he defeated. On the floor of the of the of the uh, convention, he walked over to Taft and said, "Look, we've got to sit down together." I think what Trump's going to have to do is be much more inclusive, talk to people in his own party, like Ryan, who have a lot of doubts about some of his policies, but also have a dialogue with uh, senior Democrats in order to get the country moving together. Not in every area; it's not going to work in every area, but in some areas having a conversation with her and other Democrats is going to be important if he wants to be the if he wants to get things done and he wants to be the president the inclusive president that he mentioned he wanted to be last night a statement here from the White House, just crossing, a statement from the press secretary. From the White House residence, the president phoned Donald Trump to congratulate him on his victory early this morning. The president also called Secretary Clinton and expressed admiration for the strong campaign she waged uh, throughout uh, the country. Again, that just coming across it from the White House moments ago. Bob Hormatz, Donald Trump on the campaign trail said many times he was a candidate capable of change, often in the face of criticism. He said he would act differently if he were to become president. Did you see signs of that last night in the speech that he gave? It wasn't a long speech. It wasn't a speech marked by sweeping rhetoric, but he was at points conciliatory. The tone of what he said last night, however brief, as you say, was actually very constructive. And if he continues that tone, that notion of inclusivity that he wants to be the president for all the people, that will be very important. Who he picks as his advisors, if he picks people who are pragmatists, that will be a very important signal that progress can be made. If he picks ideologues, it'll be much more difficult okay. to make progress. The White House saying here the president has invited President-elect Trump to meet him at the White House on Thursday of this week to update him on the transition planning his team has been working on for nearly a year as well. Just want to mention that too, Tom. Uh, Bob Hormitz, very quickly, you are out of Baltimore, Maryland. I would suggest that Mr. Trump had the support, just as one example, of the Baltimore police officers, or many of them as well. He has a constituency which he has to meet with, and he has to address the people that voted him in and their needs. How will he express that in the first critical 100 days? He, he does have to deal with his constituents. It's a constituency 
that feels marginalized. It feels yeah. that the elites have not paid Absolutely. attention to them, that, that, that the people who are running the country have really not dealt with their issues. So he's got to figure out a way of addressing some of the grievances that his constituents, the people who supported him, the, the movement, as he calls it, feel most strongly about. And, and that, I think, requires him to try to figure out ways well, of dealing with the, with the tax issue. Uh, the tax issue at this point, okay. I think, is probably not going to fly through the House, but he Wall's has to find okay. some way of doing it. Let's this. come back. Robert Hormat's with us this morning. David Gurr with me up until 2.30 or 3. Did you get any sleep at all? Or Two and a half hours. Away? Got back to the hotel That's at 3. That's about what I got. Yeah. Yeah, you know, a few oh, weeks. Boo-hoo. Uh, <laughs> about what I got. John Tucker has been up for 48 hours, uh, enlivening yes. our, our views. Is, is Governor Christie called looking for you to take over as he goes to Washington? Uh, you know, it was all seriousness, you got to wonder. It's a bit with this mess that's going on in federal court yes. in Newark, <laughs> where does it stop? And I don't think right. it has stopped. That has come up with Shea Tucker. Right. See that as well. <laughs> yeah, right. We welcome all of you nationwide, indeed around the world. Uh, for those of you around the world, this is remarkably American-centric this morning. And we're thrilled to have with us Robert Hormatz, who has served administrations on both sides of the aisle, most recently directly with Secretary Clinton and President Obama at State. Bob Hormatz, I, I, I guess we define, we redefine the phrase flyover America. As David was mentioning on the break, the map looks a little different uh, this morning. It is about demographics. It's about culture. It's about race. It's about a new America. And the establishment, you're a card-carrying member, must adapt. The establishment has to adopt. I, I think you're exactly right. At first, it has to understand what's going on in middle America. We in New York, I think, live in a cocoon. Uh, we don't really understand what's going on in the Midwest and all these states. Or on 11th Avenue, but continue. Or on 11th <laughs> Avenue, right, or, or, or uh, north of 96th Street. Uh, we, when I was at, under Secretary of State for Economic Affairs, I made a point of going to various parts of the country that had been hit by the downturn, the Great Recession, mm -hmm. Gary, Indiana, Hammond, Indiana, Hamtramck, Michigan, New Orleans. And there it was palpable that these people felt that they had not benefited from the recovery, that globalization was a threat, that the money that was spent to re-stimulate the economy had not helped them. It had helped Wall Street and big business. It had not helped them. They weren't getting any money. Okay. The, the financing wasn't there for them. Globalization was harmful to right. them, and new technology I, I, was displacing their jobs. I, I, I know David wants to get in here. He's got a surveillance bagel in his mouth right now, which is helping out. Bob Hormitz, help me here with your definition of Trump capitalism after what you've observed for the last two years. Well, I think Trump capitalism essentially, as he has described it, is to lower taxes, uh, not just on lower-income people, but upper-income people, hoping that that will stimulate more demand. Uh, that is probably his, his main thing. He also wants to do certain things that will help small businesses. The House Ways and Means Committee, Kevin Brady and the, and, the, and the Speaker, have a very thoughtful plan to lower taxes for small businesses so that so-called pass-through income will be taxed at 15% and not the 39.6 individual tax rate. I think there are things that can be done that will pull Democrats and Republicans together. Everyone knows you need to do things to help small business. This at least is one area. There's also going to be a lot of focus on how do you repatriate mm. the two trillion or so dollars that are held abroad. There are numerous plans being developed, again, in the so-called House Republican blueprint that can be utilized for this. I think there's going to be a lot of discussion of these kinds of things, whether they're in Trump's program or they're in the House Republican program or the Democratic right, right. program. There are areas where I think you can get some degree of, of harmony amongst yeah. the various parties David? and interests. Bob, the, the burden of expectations here is, is heavy. Donald Trump was able to travel to western Pennsylvania and, and talk to folks who have been out of work, say he's going to change things, say coal is coming back, for instance, uh, talked about the carrier conditioner company sending jobs overseas, Ford sending jobs overseas. Easier said than done, though, and these are people who are angry who are expecting him to do something. Yes, expectations are very high because the main theme of his campaign was that people in Washington weren't listening to middle America, to these people who feel disenfranchised, who feel the pain 
of, of the downturn and haven't really recovered from it. So their expectations are very high. Finding answers to these problems, not so easy, because you can bring manufacturing back, but with new technology, the kind of manufacturing that is going to come back may produce more goods, but probably will produce them with fewer people because of newer technologies. So the changes really are more driven by technology uh, than by trade competition. Trade competition can displace some jobs, but technology yeah. displaces a lot of jobs and doesn't create as many mm. new jobs for the future as well, we had anticipated. Bob Hormitz, thank you so much for coming in this morning. You had eight reasons to cancel. There's so much <laughs> going on today, but greatly appreciate it. Ambassador Hormitz, uh, look for uh, is there a book coming out do we do we I do, haven't had we, time but I'd like to write one since you two, and I collaborated on our last book we ought to try two, another one 2022 or <laughs> but I do okay. think we have to look ahead and think ahead and 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 plan yes. we've been very tactical as a country and, and our governments have been very tactical <clears throat> looking at the short term we need a long-term okay. strategy for creating growth and opportunity Right. You can't just react to events of the day. Bob Hormans, thank you so much. David Gurr and Tom Keene, Bloomberg Surveillance, thrilled you were this. <music> David Gurr and Tom Keene, we're picking up the debris after an historic day for America, a nation and a world in shock over our political moment. We are honored to bring you now someone who is in sharp support and strong support for uh, Mr. Trump, uh, Tom Barrick, who's been more than uh, visible with Colony Capital. Um, what you need to know, folks, is he does own the coolest bar in the world, Raffles, <laughs> over in Singapore. And that is a good and beautiful thing. If you and I were to have a beverage of our choice. There's only one Singapore, choice there. Yeah, so. <laughs> in, the, in, in Singapore today, Tom. I would point out your grandparents came over from Lebanon. How does your president-elect speak to immigrants in America and the people that want to come in? I, I think it's simple. I think it's a message of, of hope, opportunity, and, and renewal. And I, I think what you saw last night was a blowout of, of that immigrant mentality, right, of, of the beauty of America being a place where if you have the desire, if you have the opportunity, if you have the hard work, you can do it. And, and we've lost that over the last decade or so. So I, I think I'm a great example of, of my grandparents, my parents coming over in the, in, the, in the cargo hole of a ship with nothing and due to the beauty of the American system had an opportunity to make a living and a life way beyond their dreams for their kids. Can we get legislation through that it's Republican president Republican House, Republican Senate. Is it a Republican California? I don't even know. Look, Can I we get legislation finally done on immigration? I think absolutely so. You, you, the, the Vice President Pence, when you think of the opportunity today, it's immense. You have Trump leadership, and I think you're going to see the cadence of the man now as president, much different than the cadence of the man as candidate. The markets will, will calm. The waters will, will quiet. And Vice President Pence will have a role that probably no vice president has had in leading and mentoring through that congressional labyrinth. Did Tom Barrick wake up this morning and look at uh, real estate listings in Washington, D.C.? Are you, <laughs> are you going to be uh, headed to Washington? We're very curious here sort of what kind of team Donald Trump would assemble, just broadly speaking here. Whom does he hire? Yeah, I mean, that, that's the right question, right? Because if you look at President Reagan, what, a, a lot of the same questions, right? He was an actor. He was from California, which was a horrible thing. He went to Eureka College, which nobody had heard of. He had no foreign policy experience, and he was divorced. What did he do? He surrounded himself with the best-of-class cabinet. So he had George Schultz, Cap Weinberger, Richard Allen. I think you're going to see that now happen. He, Trump has a great transition team. But if, if you think of who the availability of those candidates were until yesterday, it was more limited because people who would consider it weren't taking it that seriously. So just in the last 12 hours on my iPhone alone, the quality of the candidates who now want to be considered is, uh, is dramatic. So I think you're going to see great choices of people who understand the system, who have used the system, but are not of the system, so that you can affect that gigantic aircraft carrier of bureaucracy in tiny degrees, not in jolts, but in tiny degrees. 
You're a successful businessman. You've heard Donald Trump talk about, say, the, the Federal Reserve uh, in political terms, terms that he's been criticized for. For those in business who are worried about remarks like that, that they might see as flippant, can you offer some assurance here that he is going to move forward in a very measured way? Yes. I mean, I think what he was doing before, I, I analogize it to the, 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 Uf, the UFC cage. He was in a political battle. He's using every known martial arts and slugfest tactic that he can. Uh, now he's president of the United States. Every word that he says reflects uh, global terror, fear, or confidence. And I think you'll see him uh, be much more judicious about what his statements are. Help me with the Republican Party for, forward. You grew up in the collegial love fest known as Southern California Republican. What a mess that used to be. Back and forth, you work with Mr. Kalmbach and uh, the personal attorney to President uh, Nixon. How do you perceive the new Republican Party with a different demographic in America? Where do the next Republicans come from? Yeah, we, we, we don't have a deep bench. And, and I think what we've seen in both parties is a redefinition of everything, uh, of the parties, of the way we analyze um, social agendas and, and monetary agendas and fiscal agendas. And when, when you look at the polling and the exit polling of what happened, what we realize is we have no tools mm -hmm. anymore. Right, the tools were totally useless, and I think I think they're equally use, useless in both parties. You, you, you find people are tired of rhetoric; they want action. A lot of people are very liberal on social issues in the, in the Republican right. Party and very conservative <clears throat> on fiscal right. issues, but they don't know what it means. You, I mean, you, you own the earthquake-free part of Santa Barbara, California, <laughs> yeah. as I, I recall. Yeah, there's only two acres yeah. of it. Yeah, I, I didn't hear anything on green America, climate change. What, what's the strategy here for something dear to the heart? Of every Californian. What is President Trump going to do on these huge issues of climate change? I think, I think it'll evolve. And, and you know, the, the priorities of the first hundred days, of course, are a little bit like when you're in an airplane and you're losing altitude. The, the first thing the captain says is take the oxygen mask and put it on. We do that every morning <laughs> to get out of bed. <laughs> By the way, I love it. I love it here. You guys have a very cool place. But he doesn't David say. David designed it. <laughs> he doesn't say take the mask and put it on your four friends and then go across the island put it on three other people. And I think that's what you're going to see is those priorities are priorities of an entitled society that needs that focus. But right now we need other focus. And our monetary policy is waning. You're going to see fiscal policy be instilled. You need a new tax code. You need you need a new health program. You need schooling. Our foreign policy has got to be restabilized. You have an opportunity for a man like Trump with a elegant foreign service bureaucracy to change the fabric of how we deal with the Middle East, of how we deal with China, of how we deal with Russia. It's an opportunity, and it's going to take a, a very sophisticated team in order to implement all of that at one time. You've watched your, your friend Donald Trump go through this here over the last many months, uh, and we have seen a lot written about Jared Kushner, his, his son-in-law, as somebody who is playing a very active role in the campaign going forward. What kind of role do you see him playing uh, in an administration? Significant. I mean, J Jared is exceptional, as is Ivanka and, and Donald's other kids. But Jared has a, a very um, refined mind, a very soft and uh, consensual approach. And most importantly, Donald trusts him, which for this president is critically important. So I think Jared, as an advisor, as a confidant, you'd have to ask Donald what, what position other than that. But for a young man, he has uh, an, an old soul and a very sophisticated mind. I assume you were at the, the, the Hilton last night for, uh, for all the goings-on uh, after the polls closed. There was a moment when Donald Trump beckoned Reince Priebus up to the stage, gave him a, a big hug. Uh, President-elect Donald Trump gave him a big hug and thanked him for it. Uh, the, the symbolism was not lost on me there. This has been at times an uneasy relationship uh, with the, the Republican Party officials. What's the importance of party allegiance in light of the campaign that we've seen here? Uh, do people have as much allegiance to their parties, be they Republican or Democrat, going forward? I think the truthful answer is no. Mm. And, and, and I think what happened in that alignment was, um, was a forced marriage. And what you saw in, in Donald bringing him up to the stage was, we did it. Uh -huh. you, you may have questioned me getting us here, but I got us here. Yeah. 
And and I think he is a, he you know what a, what a capable head of it's, it's a hopeless task being head of the Republican Party under those circumstances when you have a candidate that the party didn't even want in the first place. Yeah. Now the man is exceptionally capable. He'd be a great chief of staff. He could he could roll over and and other pieces. But I think exactly as you as you said, the definition of what is a party, what is the purpose, and do people really right. vote that way anymore? I think. It's a different game. Can you bring rugby to America? <laughs> <laughs> I hope. Then, then, then at least I could get some. Did acclaim. you watch All Blacks in Ireland the other day? It was oh, extraordinary. Yeah. No, unbelievable. Extraordinary, <laughs> isn't you it? Know, I don't know much about it. You did it. You it, played it. Well, at USC, but it was extraordinary, wasn't no, it? It was. And 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 you know, I look at the election kind of the same way. What I loved about rugby yeah. is you go out, you you compete to the fullest extent known to mankind, killing each yeah. other. And when that whistle blows at the end, they bring out a keg. It's over. <laughs> yeah, what I don't get is you've got a gorgeous face. How did you keep your? This must be all the money you got you all the house plants. I mean, your voice and intellect is perfect, but your eyesight must be failing. Thank there you. you. Yes, it is, and it's, I'm told daily. Tom Barrick, thank you uh, so much. Clearly in support and in early support of your president-elect. He is a former governor of Minnesota, the hockey player from South St. Paul, Tim Polenny. Governor, good morning. Well, thanks for that introduction. I particularly like that one. <laughs> well, thrilled to have you from our 99.1 studios in Washington. It is a different morning for Republicans in Washington. How do they adapt and adjust to their president-elect? I think fairly easily. I think most of the Republicans, if you look at their wish list, which is make some progress on the debt and the deficit, <clears throat> get tougher with respect to immigration, make sure it's legal as opposed to illegal, uh, try to get some regulatory reform and relief, try to un better unleash the American energy sector, fix or repeal Obamacare and more, and you line that up with most of Donald Trump's agenda, there's there's really good alignment. So I think with a Republican Congress and that sort of president, mm -hmm. uh, you could see people uh, get very busy in Washington very quickly. Uh, Governor Polenta, you now helm the Financial Services Roundtable there in, in, in Washington, D.C. Your constituents, your members uh, are big investors, the heads of, of, of big companies. Uh, what assurance are they getting this morning from the Trump campaign about a path forward here once he uh, begins the transition? Well, he hasn't said a lot about financial services in detail, but he said a few things over the course of the campaign. One, during the Republican convention, they put a return to Glass-Steagall, the breaking up of investment and in commercial banking into the Republican platform, and his then campaign manager embraced that. I'm not sure how vigorously he'll embrace that as a president. He also said he wants to get rid of Dodd-Frank or at least substantially overhaul it and try to uh, create more lending opportunities. And so that's hopeful from an industry standpoint. He uh, attacked carried interest specifically in a couple of junctures. That really affects more hedge funds than the regulated banks, the, the, the group that I represent or, and lead. Uh, he's also talked about the need to provide some relief for small banks and community banks in particular, mid-sized banks. So – and the list goes on a little bit. But, but basically that's a list that is pretty uh, – I think would be hopeful from the in industry feeling like that they've been over-regulated in some respects. You're in the information business. Uh, you're lobbying. You're talking to lawmakers about policy, what you'd like to see, what shape you'd like to see policy take. From what you know of Donald Trump, from what exposure you've had to him here over these last few months, how amenable is he to listening uh, to people like you amid the rhetoric, of course, of draining the, the swamp of Washington, D.C.? I think, you know, there's a big difference between what you do on the campaign trail and now the act of governing. And I think it's going to be fair to say, based on the arc of his life and what we saw during the campaign, he's never going to be the kind of person who dives into policy details. Mm -hmm. So I think he's going to set a direction and a tone and then try to trust people around him to build out the details and, and move it forward. And so who he appoints to these positions is going to be very telling and very right. impactful and very important. Governor, I mentioned this morning elections of 1800, of 1916, and of course the history of 1960. Uh, you are a Catholic, but it, you have, with your wife, spent much more time within the evangelical movement. How did Donald Trump gain the evangelical vote with some of the outrages of this campaign. You lived it out in Minnesota. How did he pull that off? I think Donald Trump uh, is somebody who benefited from his own charisma, his own projection of strength. People wanted and perceived strength. And then there's a whole bunch of people in this country who were either afraid of being disenfranchised or were disenfranchised. And one group of that were people who are concerned about their faith and religious freedom, the future of the Supreme Court, 
And while they may not have loved Donald Trump's you know, behavior at certain chapters in his life, they were very much fearful of what Hillary Clinton might do in that regard as it relates to religious freedom, uh, Supreme Court appointments and the like. And they realized those appointments in particular uh, will last and have an impact for 20 or 30 years. And so they, I think, were willing to make some concessions and, and realize it's an imperfect package, but on balance, they'd rather have uh, Trump for those reasons than Clinton. Let's uh, turn our attention to your home state, the state of Minnesota. Donald Trump and his campaign saying in the days leading up to the election that uh, the campaign had a real shot uh, of winning that state. Doesn't look like that happened. Uh, but what did he see in Minnesota? What did you see him seeing in Minnesota there that uh, that others didn't? Well, Minnesota has some characteristics of Wisconsin and some of the other Iowa and some of the other Midwestern states, but it also has some things that are you know, like other parts of the country, like Boston, for example. So we have a big med tech, high tech, more diverse economy, frankly, than some of the other parts of the Midwest. So it's a blend between some of the states that went for Trump and some of the states that went for Clinton. Clinton eked it out, but barely. It was much, much closer than people would have imagined. And he actually, with a little bit more of a boost, could have potentially won it. But Minnesota hasn't voted Republican for president since Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. It's the longest unbroken streak of any state in the nation voting for Democrat for president. And uh, yeah. in part, that's because Reagan won all the states and Mondale yeah. was on the ballot. And he didn't. He carried Mondale, carried Minnesota. HHH. Governor Tim Pawlenty yeah. there, uh, former governor of Minnesota, now CEO of the Financial Services Roundtable in Washington, D.C. Next, Ian Brummer joins us. Of course, you're with Eurasia Group. He is picking up the debris of the international relations of uh, Eurasia Group with a domestic focus today. Uh, Dr. Bremer, good morning to you. There was a moment where Mexican peso signaled that Secretary Clinton would do what the elite said, and then, th and then things changed. Why did they change at 10 p.m. last night? Look, uh, I mean, there's no question this comes as a shock to everybody that was uh, watching the polls. Um, you know, the, I think what happened is not the, – the, the, the structural issues aren't different. It's just that they hit harder, right? I mean, you have – uh, a population uh, with uh, a very strong anti-establishment sensibility. That's not just about Democratic leadership. It's Republican leadership. Um, it's the mainstream media. Uh, you have uh, an economic rebound, but a feeling that that rebound is not getting um, to lots of people in the middle and working classes. Um, and you also were running the most establishment candidate with a lot of negatives that either side could have put forward. Given all of that, the polls were still showing a very significant Hillary win towards the end, um, and uh, a lot of it was. It's about the question of turnout. A lot of people not telling you what they're planning on doing in the mm -hmm. polls. Uh, even, even given that, uh, the United States demographics should have given you a different outcome than what you saw in the UK. That just wasn't the case, and uh, and and now, of course, you're going to see a dramatically right. different U.S. foreign policy in the rest of the world. Ian Bremer, let's talk a little bit about that policy. Uh, we, we, we have a, 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 a situation in Syria that continues to worsen. We have fighting in Mosul once again. We have a relationship uh, with Russia that is fractious, to say the least. What's at the top of the agenda here for President-elect Trump when it comes to foreign policy? Well, uh, you know, the, the wall is what he says is at the top of the agenda, uh, but nobody really believes uh, that it's going to get built. I think the thing, the things that he talks about and the constraints that he will face in foreign policy uh, will be very great. I mean, Obama was a radical departure from Bush's foreign policy. And yet if you look at what Obama's foreign policy has actually accounted to over the course of eight years, you see that in most cases it's not all that different. You still have wars going on in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan. Guantanamo is still open. Um, European relations aren't that great. Israel-Palestine hasn't gotten fixed. I mean, some things happened, of course, in Iran deal. Um, but, you know, if you ask where Trump is going to matter most, he's going to matter most in terms of the fact that every single U.S. ally thinks that he's a disaster for their relationship in the future, thinks that he's not committed to American alliances, thinks he's not committed to American trade, thinks he's not committed to American values. And so, therefore, you're going to see an incredible amount of international hedging away from America, and not towards any single thing. It's an absence of American leadership and right. an absence of global leadership. And for the Middle East in particular, that means a lot more violence. Right. So, you know, interestingly enough, in Syria is the one place that, given his relationship, his desire to have a closer relationship with Russia, I do think the view will be Assad yeah. isn't going anywhere. This is a big win for Assad. 
um, and uh, and let's just do yeah. what we can to get out and, and keep the fighting off. We continue with Ian Bremmer of Eurasia Group. David Gura, quickly a data check. The tape improves, particularly off where we were, 10 p.m. into midnight. Futures negative 30, dramatically worse earlier. The Dow not negative 400, negative 300. Negative 232. That's quite an improvement. Just over 18,000 yields come in uh, come in from where they were. 1.96 percent on the 10-year yield. David Ian Bremmer. Last night we heard Donald Trump doing conciliatory as best he could around three o'clock in the morning when he delivered his speech uh, uh, at the at the at the Hilton here in in Midtown uh, Manhattan. He said that we would be willing to the U.S. would be willing to meet with with any countries. Again, just uh, emphasizing that he wants fair deals uh, with them. Who's going to lead his efforts to engage with? other foreign leaders around the world? Well, so far, it's been his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Uh, he's the one that's actually organized the meetings that Trump has had with heads of state. He's been in those meetings individually, um, and he is he does have a strong view um, on foreign policy, clearly wants to play a role. Um, but in terms of who's going to be the secretary of state or who's going to be, you know, sort of the secretary of defense, I mean, frankly, there's no one that's been around Trump that's considered radically credible on those issues. So either he goes for a complete outsider, uh, he takes one of his advisors that you know doesn't have experience on these points. I mean, you know, Newt Gingrich would be an obvious choice, um, or or uh, you know, you're going to see him reach out to some of the uh, Republican establishment and and on foreign policy. Literally everyone in the Republican uh, establishment has said that they're strongly opposed to this guy. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. David Gura with Tom Keene on the day after Election Day, 2016, the 9th of November, looking at economic indicators here, brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer, RIA, that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. Tom, at 10 o'clock today, wholesale inventories, uh, wholesale trade sales coming out as well tomorrow, looking ahead to initial jobless claims. Suffice to say, uh, the biggest economic indicator uh, is Donald Trump. President-elect Donald Trump and the uncertainty surrounding that, who will be on his cabinet, what his economic policy will look like. Uh, that's what we're continuing to follow here uh, this morning. Uh, and with that, I want to bring in the Honorable Dick Gephardt, former congressman, former Democratic uh, leader, joining us now uh, by phone. He is now the president and CEO of the Gephardt Group. And uh, Congressman Gephardt, bring to bear your experience governing uh, in the minority when you have such a um, majority of the other party uh, in, in Washington. Does he take us back to 1994? How useful is it to look at that when you're, when you're looking at the way things shook out last night? Well, I think it is useful to look at history always and experience. Uh, you know, that was a tumultuous election. We lost the House for the first time in 40 years. So it was a big, devastating loss to Democrats, just like this is today for Democrats. But it's a great country, and we have to move forward together, and you have to make decisions. And, you know, I, I always remind people that in that period after 94, you know, the Republicans shut down the government twice, and they impeached President Clinton. And in the midst of all that, uh, we were solving problems. We balanced the budget. We got welfare reform done. So... You can do these things even in the midst of lots of disagreement and difficulty. And that's kind of the story of democracy. You know, it's a substitute for violence. Uh, you, we put our ancestors put 535 people in the room, not one. And that means you've got to work hard every day but among that group and with the president to get hard things done, to resolve those inevitable conflicts that come on policy between this vast, diverse country. Congressman Gephardt, what happens to the anger that we have seen on the campaign trail here? You mentioned the 435 members of Congress. Were there proxies for that anger? How does that play out? Well, it's a real, it's a real problem. But uh, again, you have to deal with what you've got. Um, 
There were a lot of grievances, in my view, that were expressed last night. It, it's wrong, I think, to make all the statements about what was being expressed. I think a lot of different things were being expressed. Economic grievances, gender grievances, social grievances, racial grievances, uh, and, and a lot of others. And, and so there was a lot of anger out in the country for a variety of reasons that got expressed. The people make the decision. And so the people that got elected have a duty, a responsibility to come to Washington and try painstakingly, which it always is, to find compromises that can allow the country to move forward. That's their job, and that's what they need to do. Mr. Gebhardt, uh, it has been a tumultuous two weeks. I guess the election counts as a smaller item than the Chicago Cubs winning. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know what that means to a gentleman from St. Louis. Yeah. But, um, I, 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 give us a perspective on how your and truly your St. Louis has changed over the years. It's changed America. It is a different America. This was to happen. That was to happen. All the pundits got it wrong. How has your St. Louis changed over the ensuing years? Well, it, there, there's so much change, it's, it's hard to know where to start. Uh, first of all, when I was growing up in the 50s in St. Louis, it was a, you know, a Midwestern industrial town. We had big corporation headquarters. We had lots of jobs. My dad was a milk truck driver uh, and delivered milk door to door. He didn't get through high school. And he used to always say to me, you know, you have clothes on your back. You have uh, we're in the middle class, he used to say, because I'm in a union that gets me fair wages for my hard work. That was the world I grew up in. That world is gone. And now you're into a completely different world from all aspects. Uh, Our economy has changed dramatically in the last 40, 30, 40, 50 years. Our information uh, revolution has, is, to me, bigger than the Industrial Revolution, and that's changed everything, disrupted mm-hmm. everything. And, and you've got a more multiracial society than we had. Women have obtained many more abilities to do things in the economy and in our society. So there's a lot of, you know, really earth-moving change that's gone on, and in, in a way, this this election and pat some past elections right. have been a reaction how, to a lot of that change. we have a minute left only sir uh, from our studios in washington how does your democratic party regroup what do you need to see from the present leadership speaker pelosi and such well i think both parties are faced with grappling with all of this change and, and the grievances that agreed, were expressed agreed, yeah. and and so you know in our primary for president, we had the Bernie Sanders effect, and that expressed a lot of these grievances that are out there. And I guess you can say we've got to deal with that. The Democratic Party has to get back in touch with working-class Americans. They've got to really address, I think most importantly, the Democrats have to right. be able to address with the Republicans these urgent issues that are in front mm-hmm. of us as a country and oh. work with Republicans as best they can to find those magic compromises that allow right. us to move forward. He is Gebhardt from St. Louis. Mr. Gebhardt, thank you so much from our studios in Washington this morning, 991 uh, FN. I, you know, this is remarkable, David. I, I mean, I just can't say enough about the guests we're having. And the, truly the shock of this moment for all, including the supporters of Mr. Trump. Unexpected by many, but yeah, we're yeah. going to speak with another one. David Malpass will be joining I, us shortly. Shot near North Carolina last night from 18-ish up to record weakness, 20.50 on Mexican peso. A little better recovery through the morning, uh, given Mr. Trump's speech, etc. But we've just had a new leg up in peso. It'll be interesting to see if we break through to new uh, weakness. For all Americans, I really can't convey enough a careful read of always wonderful Michael Barone at the American Enterprise Institute. If you are the most diehard Bernie Sanders supporter or a supporter of Secretary Clinton and obviously Republican peruse his November 5th 
essay on royalist America. It is really something. He leaves no and no candidates unscarred. Joining us now, we are honored to have with us Secretary Malpass. No. Oh, excuse me. I'm trying to get a OMB a, a, director. A, 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 OMB director, I think. David, congratulations on your economic instincts and your persistency of advocating a Republican Party policy around the candidate you were dealt. When did you become a Trump supporter? I, I don't think, hi, Tom. Good morning, and David. Um, I don't think uh, that's the right way to think about this. Donald Trump is very strongly knowledgeable about where he wants to take the country, and that's what drove this. It wasn't It wasn't uh, people creating the plan. It was him saying, look, taxes. Okay, re- re- remember the, the knowledge <laughs> of the tax code. The tax code is really screwed up, so that was a principal focus of of the uh, of the campaign and so on down the list. Some would have suggested if he released school, his taxes, maybe we would have well, been able to focus uh, uh, on the code. Okay, but school choice is a really important thing to Americans. Yes. He identified that, talked about it a okay. lot, and did these uh, uh, lots of addresses on policy change. So we ought to look at it that way. Can he affect policy now that the strategy has been led to victory? I think so, definitely. And so look at the Republican House and Senate. That's going to be a critical aspect of this. I liked last night how he reached out to lots of people, to foreign countries, yes. saying saying we're going um, America's going to be fair for everyone. He reached out to Reince Priebus. And so these were strong ways to bring people together. Uh, House and Senate will be critical in policy implementation. A lot of stuff he can do through leadership. Mm-hmm. And l- l- Americans in the exit polls yesterday were saying above of all, they want a strong leader, and he's showing that, and also, I think, uh, showed a very good uh, speech last night to bring people together. David Malpass, you have served uh, in federal government. Excuse Donald me, Trump, very Secretary pre- Malpass. Secretary. No, no, please, you guys. That, 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 that's not right at all. We'll talk to him tomorrow and see what the story Go is. Ahead. Uh, you've served in government. Donald Trump very proudly has not served in government. If you had a few minutes with him to talk about what to, what he needs to know going into to, to running the federal government, what would you say? Uh, again, that's not the way it works. He knows a lot about how government operates. He's been uh, uh, w- watching government and and uh, thinking about how it should be done. He's already said that he wants a business-like government, that the way the government's been operating is sloppy. It doesn't work. It's very costly. So we know one of the things he'll want to do is bring very qualified people into positions and allow Mm. them to operate the way he does in his business enterprises. We joke about you being Secretary Malpass, but are you convinced here that there are Republicans, establishment Republicans, others who will take the call when Donald Trump calls, offering them positions in his government who may not have supported him here on the campaign trail. Uh, I don't mean to be cynical, but uh, uh, l- there are a lot of people who would like to like to uh, help uh, who weren't helping before, and so I I think there is going to be a need for everybody in the country mm. to kind of pull together. And w- w- right. w- there are millions of people not in the labor force. We've talked about this okay. a, a lot, and that <clears throat> need jobs, need to be have small businesses that create new right. investments. Everybody has to pull together. You are the physicist from Colorado College. I want I want to now go over the physics of something complex. Steve Roach mentioned this yesterday before this shocking election. David Malpass, explain the physics of dynamic scoring. It's hugely controversial. People have beat you, Wilbur Ross, and others up, Peter Navarro. Tell me why the critics of Malpass dynamic scoring are wrong. Dynamic scoring simply means that the economy changes when you change policy. It's dynamic. And so we know that if you put in a better tax code, people are going to work harder. They're going to invest more. There's a divide in the parties. Sometimes Democrats say, oh, no, people won't work more. They'll work less because they're getting more take-home pay. That's not actually the way it works. When you have lower rates on a broader base, as Ronald Reagan and did, you got more business involvement and more hiring, more people that wanted to uh, advance. And the median income went up very rapidly. That's dynamic Can scoring. you model that into the portfolio and into the plugins and predictions at CBO, for, just for example, before the fact, or does President Trump and his administration have to wait, as everyone else does, till after the fact. One way to do numbers is to say if we grow 4%, 
what happens to revenues. And so if you keep revenues constant as a percentage of GDP as you accelerate the GDP, it actually turns out that the debt-to-GDP ratio starts going down. If you then project that to the business community, say, look, things are getting better from the government's debt standpoint, they're going to invest more. And so you end up with a dynamic business investment environment uh, that creates jobs like crazy. So, And Mr. Trump knew that from the beginning. He said, well, it's not just 4%. There can be more than that. I know there can yeah, but be. The question, 25 David, million jobs. The, the distinction here, using a phrase from President Obama, is the hope and audacity of modeling the success before you get that payoff from fiscal policy. Exactly. Am I right? Well, but if you model uh, stagnation, then businesses aren't going to invest. My current Forbes column, which which I think is on newsstands, says that straight out. When you do a shameless plug like that, (laughs) when you're you're a secretary mail pass, you just let it pass. Available on newsstands now. There you go. David Valpass, before before you went to Colorado Springs, you you were in northern Michigan. Looking at the election results last night, Donald Trump carrying Michigan, the first time a Republican has done that since 1988. He tapped into something there. We were talking about the burden of expectations earlier. A lot of rhetoric here about Ford sending jobs to Mexico. The carrier air conditioning company sending jobs uh, uh, out of the country as well. You've got people now who are expecting action. How is Donald Trump going to deliver? yeah, so I I grew up in a very small town in a in in blue collar my uh, in in mm-hmm. iron, iron foundry country, and so it's very challenging for American workers to see iron coming in from India castings that are landed in Michigan at a lower cost than what could possibly pr- be produced in the U.S. And so that that t- Trump was able to explain that to Americans, that the system, the global government system that we've been operating under hasn't worked for Americans. I think there can be constructive changes. And he reached out to everybody in the world yesterday and said, let's make this work. Actually, it was today, this morning. Well, nobody knows that with a sleep deprived. (laughs) Secretary Malpass, I want to bring bring up one name. We're trying to avoid the... uh, the guessing of the administration, but there is one name that has served this nation. You and I know him quite well, and that is Roger Ferguson. Is it time for Mr. Ferguson to re-enter the political maelstrom and serve the nation again? He was a great Fed vice chair. I don't. So I really don't have comments on personnel. Um, there, you know, uh, President-elect Trump has said that he's going to reach out to lots to to the best, most talented. He used a Kennedy phrase, I think, last night: "Best and brightest" to make the country grow again and great mm-hmm. again. And so, certainly, anyone who can contribute to that, there is the need for them to do it, either in their own business or in government, both ways. Mm-hmm. We need a government that's working effectively for the American people. We haven't had that, and that can be uh, repaired. David, congratulations on the wisdom of this election from the eyes of the Just. Congrats to, to, to Trump worked. Think how hard he worked uh, every day for two years, uh, giving speech after speech to explain this to the biggest part of the American public. David Malpass, thank you so much. William Seema at Global and an early supporter of the economics of President-elect Trump. It is a most odd market. It is uncorrelated, and it is levels in search of new levels. Yields 11 basis points higher, 1.97%. As we mentioned earlier, the probability of Fed action coming in decisively off the Bloomberg on December, 50-50 roughly. Right now, green on the screen, the Dow up 68 points, but stocks going this way and that. David Wilson, of course, mentioning the hospital stocks crushed off of uh, thoughts on the Affordable Care Act. We afford a good time to speak with Mohammed El Aryan. Uh, it is wonderful to speak to him. Of course, publishing in the FT uh, a bit ago. Dr. El Aryan, good morning. Your book, When Markets Collide, Change the Language of Game Theory, page 280. Pascal's wager applies to a situation in which there is a small probability of an event that has an enormous consequence. Thank you for predicting the Trump election. 
Good morning, Tom. Tom, it's, it's just one of a long list of improbables, if not unthinkables, that have become reality. And it's the system telling us something, which is if you run advanced economies at low speed for a long time, and if this yeah. low speed is non-inclusive, things break. My chart of the year is real GDP down 40-some percent on a rate basis from 4-point-some percent to 2.1% back 30 years or so, and it really speaks to the slowdown. What policy prescription can there be to jumpstart this economy to the quoted Trump number of 4%? So the good news is there's pretty broad-based consensus in the profession that you need to move on four things. One, pro-growth structural reforms, such as corporate tax reform, Two, a more balanced demand management, including infrastructure spending on fiscal side. Three, deal with the debt problems in Greece and elsewhere. And finally, better global policy coordination. So there is an engineering solution. It's whether the politics will implement it. You grew up in a house of diplomacy, Dr. El Arian. You have an esteemed British education where game theory is a cottage industry. What should be the game theory of Mr. Trump as he moves from movement, as he called it in his acceptance speech, to the reality of executing politics? What's the change agent he needs within Donald Trump's game theory? So I think it's to move quickly in areas that can yeah. have an immediate positive impact and where there is broad-based agreement. So he has promised, for example, infrastructure spending, corporate tax reform, raising the tax on carried interest, deregulation. If he moves quickly on this, but refrains from moving on other things he's promised, particularly protectionism, slapping tariffs on China and Mexico, mm -hmm. breaking up NAFTA, if he was to able to do this combination and communicate it as he did at 2.30 this morning right. in a conciliatory fashion, he could get more, he could get positive momentum. Mm -hmm. Two themes to speak of in our final minutes with you this morning. Can Prime Minister May avoid a hard Brexit? The language of Parliament seems to be towards moderation. Is that feasible within the British system? Um, it, it is. It is feasible. She can avoid a hard Brexit. Um, right now, things have moved towards a softer Brexit and a longer Brexit process. So clearly that there is a way out, but the, the politics, again, are complicated. And we haven't even spoken about what's happening with the Italian referendum. Politics will remain a big issue on your show, Tom, in the, in the weeks and months to come. Uh, we'll see that. We had wonderful perspective. Thank you to Richard Haas and Robert Hormetz for perspective this morning. Finally, Dr. Elarian, to your Egypt, the depreciation, the unpegging, if you will, of the Egyptian pound was extraordinary. How does the LCC government, uh, whatever you want to phrase it as a government, how do they deal with a black market Egyptian pound affect the effect of that upon the people of Cairo in Egypt? So first and foremost, they need to protect the most vulnerable segment of the population. And the program that they've agreed to with the IMF attempts to do that. Secondly, they need to promote higher growth quickly. And there are the reforms. And thirdly, they have to make sure that the exchange system work, works properly. Um, this is probably the most comprehensive reform program that Egypt has put together, and there's commitment from the very top to its implementation. So it's going to be really critical for them to follow through and for them to get the external assistance that the program assumes. But doesn't it assume domestic reform as well? And can the LCC government do that? Can they domestically reform away from international rulemakers like Madame Lagarde and the IMF? So what they're hoping to do is to reform with the support of the international community um, and implement a program that they have stressed is designed in Egypt for Egypt, but needs the support of the outside world. That That is the approach that's that's being adopted. And... We will see as the, as the various components come together and whether they're sustained or not. Mm -hmm.
Dr. Larian, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Mohammed Larian, folks, I can't say enough about his more recent uh, a, a book as uh, well and frankly becomes ever more interesting given the political festivities of the last 24 uh, hours. Just truly, truly extraordinary. Mohammed Larian, of course, writing often for Bloomberg View. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.